what I have to say about attraction, especially when women are scarce, is simple. The first thought of attraction is a lodestone. It's that sensation inside a man's head that says, there's something about this, maybe it should be mine. You drift towards this meddlesome person that has caught your attention, and the more you're exposed to it, the more you fancy it. It may blossom into something more, or you'll lose interest and find something else to be attracted to, or you may just die over it. This is the deadly case of Levi Richardson and cockeyed Frank Loving in the gunfight at the Long Branch Saloon. It was late March of 1879 when I entered the Lady Gay Dance Hall and Saloon. The cattle drive season into Dodge City was beginning to pick up, and many drovers were about town. Cattlemen and cattle dealers were beginning to come in to select their hotel quarters for the summer. At the time, James Masterson and Ben Springer were co-owners of the Lady Gay. The dance hall and saloon, located south of the railroad tracks, attracted many undesirables. The saloon became a popular place for Texas drovers, gamblers, and dance hall girls. A night did not pass without some sort of commotion of gunplay or a fight breaking out, ending up in the streets. Dodge City overdid herself with a number of saloons. There were 16 saloons in all, with its population of less than a 1,000. Each of the establishments located on the south side of the tracks adorned the front shelters with large painted signs. The signs, each with a unique design, had the appeal to catch the eye of a marauding cowboy. Most were one-room shanties with dirt floors and backroom bordellos. The Lady Gay was different. A stylish place, more like the saloons located on Front Street, owned by the more prominent citizens about town. The only difference between the Lady Gay and the Front Street saloons is that it had a raised stage for entertainment, a clear area for dancing, and some divided back cribs for private pleasures. The Lady Gay appealed to all of the cowboys' bliss. It was a place to set aside burdens from a long cattle drive, to purge oneself of worry, regret, and disappointment, or refresh a man's outlook on the world. The Lady Gay offered poker, roulette, and faro. Along with gambling, there were waiter girls, the sometimes partially attired nymphs, good for dance, and often more. The prostitutes, frail sisters, and soiled doves operated in the back rooms. And just as these fallen angels had their place in the Lady Gay, so did proponents of the unblemished variety. The itinerant preachers were usually welcome to address the assembled carousers. It was a fair arrangement. The Sin Buster got ready-made congregation and the customers enjoyed some lively entertainment. When I entered the saloon, the smoke from the 25-cent cigars twisted in its artistic way, forming curls in the gloom, illuminated only by the aged speckled oil lights. Along the wall was every hue of amber liquid in their inverted bottles. The voice of James Masterson yelled out in my direction from behind the bar. Hey, Marshal Bassett! Come on over here and give me a visit, requested James. I've got some news for you, something you might want to hear. I pulled up to the mahogany bar, rested on my left elbow, leaned up against the foot railing and turned to look outward into the crowded room. My gun hand was free to move and my ear was ready to take some news from James. James was always good about giving me the lowdown on some of his clients, especially if any ruckus was being thrown about by some expected pugilism brewing between two cowboys. James raised a finger to call me closer. I turned my head slowly to my right to watch him scrub the inside of glass off the bar. Jim turned his head. 
The professional smile he'd worn all night was entirely gone. His eyes were pink, lids sagging, and his face hung loose and long. Look over there, whispered James with a nod in the direction of the faro table. Look at Richardson and how he's going after Matty. I looked in the direction of the faro table and saw Matty. Matty leaned on the table, her black hair was lying over one shoulder of her cotton dress. She lolled her head to one side, pushing out her red lips just a little. She wasn't drunk, but she liked to give the impression that she was. Richardson was there to take her affection, eyes dropping only momentarily to her low-cut neckline. She twiddled her hair in a seemingly absent-minded way and giggled before she went upstage for her performance. She watched Richardson as she made her way to the stage. Richardson gave away no secrets in the room. He was ready to fandango with a married woman. Maddie was the wife of cockeyed Frank Loving. We called him cockeyed Frank because one of his optics bored in a northeast direction to the other. He was a 19-year-old cowhand turned professional gambler. Frank Loving was born in Jackson County, Missouri about 1860, spending much of his childhood in Kansas City. In 1872, his father died, but within a few months, his mother remarried. The new family moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Eventually, Loving came up the trail to Dodge City and was now making his living as a gambler. Frank Loving was a desperate man. Like all gamblers, they consider it necessary in their business that they keep up their fighting reputation and never take a bluff. Loving was not much of a rowdy individual, but more of the cool and desperate order. Frank was a good friend of mine, as well as Sheriff Masterson. He also became good friends with Long Branch Saloon owner Chocolate Beeson and reputed gunfighter Levi Richardson, the same man who now had his eyes on Maddie Loving. Maddie stepped up to the small stage with several other dancers, and the piano player struck the keys to the tune of the high-toned dance. The cowboys gathered around with Richardson, pushing himself front and center so that he could see all the glory. The dancers brought something to the surface, an emotion, spark a hope, that was seditious in these times. Without speaking a word, they conjured up what the audience felt underneath, bringing unity of mind about the Texas drovers could find pleasure, the stylish lifting of the leg. Richardson, with all his emotions, could not hold back. He climbed the stage with one jump and pulled Maddie forward and began his dance routine in front of the clamoring crowd. Richardson, being drunk out of his mind, was as graceful as a sledgehammer in a knife fight, but he got the crowded room going. Till one moment, Richardson is dancing with all the grace of a three-legged spider. The next, he's flying off the stage with his arms and hands extended in front of him. His left foot should have extended to take his weight. Instead, it became caught on the outside corner trim of the stage. He hit the floor, sending a plume of smoke upward. His groan was enough to drain Maddie's face. The music stopped, and the room fell silent. Then, with one bounce to his feet, with the expression of shock and horror, Richardson was up and yelled out, One hell of a night, boys! One hell of a night! Richardson's voice boomed over the crowd. The strident timbre of his voice caused a discord of applause and cheering, whooping, hollering, clapping, and stamping of feet. Palpable excitement buzzed through the charged air of the saloon. Richardson stood in the center of the crowd with an infectious grin. The cowboys raised their mugs, glasses, and bottles to the fallen man, now recovered in full spontaneous outpouring of emotion, shaking hands and patting one another on the back. Come here, Maddie, Richardson said. They reached out and pulled her over. It's time for a slow dance. It's time to dance the night away. 
Maddie's gaze slid to the side as Richardson pulled her against his chest. His nose tickled her ear. She let out a tiny gasp and squirmed uncomfortably. I could tell Maddie didn't like the way Richardson intimately handled her. Levi Richardson was known as a slow and awkward man and had a fierce disposition. Richardson, a hard worker and now freighter, had a known fault of tending to his grudges like a gardener. He also had a reputation as a gunman, despite it being mostly hearsay. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of Dave Matthews. Matthews got up from his chair and moved towards the door. Hey, Dave, where do you think you're going? I shouted. I'm heading over to the Long Branch, replied Matthews. I've had enough of this Richardson fellow for one night. If I don't get out of here now, you might have to be planting him tomorrow morning. Now, you're not going to say nothing about what you saw here tonight, are you? I asked. You mean am I going to tell Frank about Richardson and his foolings with his wife, replied Dave. Well, Bassett, I might just do that. Now that might start some trouble, Dave, I said. You know I got to keep the peace and you'd just be stirring it up. Well, no one around here cares much for that Richardson fella anyway, exclaimed Dave. It's going to happen whether I do it or Frank does it. The only man in this town who has a liking for Richardson is Bat. I'm thinking Bat's not going to get in my way or Frank's if we pull some lead and drive this Richardson into the ground. Well, you're heading in the direction of Front Street. You'll need to check those guns with me, I demanded. So hand them over and you'll get them back soon enough. I watched Matthews cross over to the tracks headed north to Front Street. It was then I wished I'd not taken this job and was still the owner of the Long Branch. I'd purchased the Long Branch Saloon in 1873 along with my partner, A.J. Peacock. The saloon was built around the result of a wager between cowboys and soldiers playing ball. Bets were placed, and if the cowboys beat the soldiers, the soldiers agreed to provide building materials to construct a saloon. I decided to sell the saloon during the fall of 1873 after I was elected sheriff of Ford County, Kansas. That was on June 5, 1873. The saloon changed hands several times, and on March 1, 1878, Beeson decided to purchase the Long Branch. Beeson paid a good price for the establishment to the firm of Dexter D. Colley and James H. Mannion. Beeson could not afford to run two saloons, so he took William H. Harris in and his partner. Chalkley first opened the Saratoga in 1876 and became encouraged by his success as a saloon owner. He offered a reasonable price for the Long Branch. The Long Branch was rather narrow room, deeper than it was wide. The Long Branch was dominated by its long, fancy hardwood bar with a mirrored back bar topped by a set of longhorns on the wall behind it, as well as a large painting depicting an Indian fight. The rear section of the room was filled with a scattering of tables, overlooked by a moose head with an impressive span of antlers mounted on the back wall. The whole scene was lit by an oil chandelier that hung in the center of the room, and several other hanging oil lamps positioned along its walls. I stepped out on the boardwalk in front of the Lady Gate Saloon when I caught a glimpse of a rider slapping both tailings of his horse. The thundering hooves split the silence as a lone stallion galloped down 2nd Avenue. What I hoped would not happen was about to happen. The rider was Frank Loving. Frank dismounted his horse, tied the reins to the hitching post, climbed the boardwalk, and was in arm's reach of me within seconds. I held out my left hand with a motion to stop. 
Now hold on there, Frank, I said. You don't have a gun on you, do you? A muscle twitched involuntarily at the corner of Frank's right eye. His mouth formed a rigid grimace. With arms folded tightly against his chest, he tapped his foot furiously, and all the while stared directly into my eyes. I thought to myself, this fitful evening would either see the dawn of Frank's revenge, or snap him quickly in two. I don't have time for this, Marshal, anxiously replied Frank as he moved quickly toward the door of the saloon. I'm here to fetch my wife. You can't keep me from taking my Maddie home. I can if you have a gun on you, I replied. I don't have a gun on me, so let me go. Now, yelled Frank. I mean it, Marshal. I'm going into that saloon, so back off. I'll let you in if you promise me you will cause no trouble. Get Maddie and leave, I replied. Marshal, I'm going in now, so let me be, replied Frank. Okay, but I'm going in with you, I said, so just calm down. All right, Marshal, I'm calm, Frank replied as he pushed his way past me and into the saloon. It did not take Frank long to spot Maddie. Maddie was on stage performing and Richardson was in front, saluting her performance. Frank approached the stage and with one reach pulled Maddie to the floor. You coming with me, yelled Frank. Then a sharp voice from the crowd of onlookers yelled out, Hold on there, cowboy. You do not have the right to treat the fair lady that way. Frank turned abruptly and faced Richardson. You do not have the right to tell me what I can or cannot do with my wife, firmly stated Frank. Now move out of my way before you feel my real anger. Well, if it's not big, bad, cockeyed Frank Loving, said Richardson with a smirk. Hey, Frank, what are you looking at today? You're the only man in the world who can see two spots in a room at one time. That's why they call you a cockeyed. I quickly stepped in between them. Now that's enough, boys, I demanded. Richardson quickly stepped around and took a swing at Frank. I shoved Richardson back before he could connect a blow. Damn you, Richardson, back off, I commanded. I looked back over to the bar and yelled out, Put a shotgun on this one, and pointed over the fallen Richardson. James Masterson quickly rounded out behind the bar, holding his double-barrel shotgun and directly aligning it with the fallen Richardson's face. Well now, my friend, seems if you're going to have to cool down a bit, stated James. Why don't you get yourself out of here before I have to make a mess of you? I sure am not looking for the cleanup afterward, but if I have to, I will. All right, all right, replied Richardson. You and the marshal have made your point. I'm going. That's right, Richardson, replied James. You get out of here now or you're gone forever. Richardson leaned down, picked up his hat, slapped it twice on his leg, and walked out the door and out of sight. I turned to Frank and looked him in the eye. You'd better get this lady home now before something else takes a turn for evil feelings. Yeah, Marshal, I agree, replied Frank. This is the moron culture. Moron, moron, more. It's about as sane as riding off a cliff because the rest of the herd is doing the same. It's time to stop. It's time to lead this here herd to newer pastures. Frank and Maddie left the lady gay, giving me time to rest and reflect between conflicts. I went out and sat on a bench outside the saloon. I propped my boots up on a hitching post and looked out into the dark streets, hallowed with oil lanterns. I listened for the quiet, but there was none, only boisterous shouts and the tin sounds of a piano playing dancing tunes. I looked up in my musings to see a deep silver of the moon turning pirouettes for no applause, an orb with a buttermilk glow. 
The moon was so close to Earth, keeping me company while she may. The moon reflected upon me both positive and negative memories. The negative memories are like the hanging of an innocent man. They come with a cost, as addictive as they feel. Once lessons are learnt, there's nothing in them of value. The positive memories come as a friend with a picnic basket. They're right and nourishing, supportive and kind. So I chose this moment to let the bad memories wander off on their own and encourage the good memories to blossom and grow. This way I become confident, well-balanced and in control of me, able to appreciate each moment as a gift and to see the positive future. The short rest from an evening of excitement did not last long as I heard the roofs of a fast-approaching horse with a voice yelling out in the dark, Marshal! Marshal! There's trouble at the Long Branch! Come quickly! I recognized the voice as William Duffy. Bad appointed William Duffy as deputy sheriff to assist me in holding down the peace while he was away from attending his duties as Fort County Sheriff. Masterson left Dodge City on March 20th to lead a small band of recruited mercenaries to participate in the Royal Gorge War. I did not have a lot of confidence in Duffy, especially when he allowed some of my prisoners to escape from jail. I looked out into the street and caught a glimpse of Duffy on his mount. Marshal, they're at it again, exclaimed Duffy. Who's at it again, I asked. Richardson and Loving, replied Duffy. Richardson went over to the Long Branch to settle his differences. I think they're going to have a fight. Duffy, I said, get down off that horse and give me the reins. I quickly rode over to Front Street and spotted both Richardson and Loving squared off in the street, among them a cheering crowd. The two men grunted as they took handfuls of each other's clothing and attempted to wrestle the other to the ground. Then Loving released a handhold and used it to start jabbing Richardson in his ribs. Richardson released both hands and grabbed Loving's hair, bringing his face down sharply onto his bent knee. Blood flowed from Loving's broken nose as he staggered backward. That seemed to be the end of the little scuffle. After exchanging punches, Richardson shouted, "'I'll blow the guts out of you, you cockeyed son of a gun!' Loving, who was not armed, turned and walked away. It was late in the evening on April 5th before I had a chance to eat at Beatty and Kelly's restaurant. The restaurant, known for its fresh oysters, was owned by Beatty and Dog Kelly, the current mayor of Dodge City. The building that housed the restaurant had many homes before arriving in Dodge City. The building was initially erected in Leavenworth, then moved to Junction City, to Ellsworth, to Hayes City, and finally to Dodge. The restaurant served meals at all hours of the day and evening. I entered the restaurant, pulled back a chair to a round table, and sat close to a window overlooking Front Street. The waiter brought me some fresh, warm bread, and I could not help but inhale deeply. The bread smelled vibrant and promising. I picked up a knife, applied a thick amount of creamy yellow butter, and took in the start of my first meal for the day. I looked out the window and saw Deputy Duffy approaching the boardwalk with Sarah Warren. Sarah and Duffy entered the restaurant and moved in my direction before I could swallow my first bite. Marshal, exclaimed William Duffy, I have some important news for you, and I brought Mrs. Warren along to explain it. I raised my right hand in a hold motion. Can you give me a second, Duffy? I mumbled. I need to put this piece of bread to rest. Yes, sir, Marshal, Duffy replied, but what Mrs. Warren has to tell you is real important. What's on your mind, Mrs. Warren? I asked. What seems to be troubling you? Marshal, I don't need to be bothering you during your meal, but Levi Richardson just left my place, said Mrs. Warren. He gave me these personal papers and told me to take care of them. 
He said that if anything happened to him, they would be of no use to him. They would be mine. It seems obvious from him, giving me these papers, that Richardson might be planning a duel with Frank Loving. Did he say where he was headed? I asked. All Richardson said is he was headed to a bar, replied Mrs. Warren. He said something about needing to start a fire in his belly to chase away the chill of the cold evening to give him the courage to put his plan into action. I watched him leave my place, and he was headed into the bar located along the east side of the Long Branch. Mrs. Warren, I would not worry none, I said. I'll send Deputy Sheriff Duffy over to check this out. I sincerely thank you for bringing this affair to me. Now, why don't you go on home? Thank you, Marshal. Thank you very much, replied Mrs. Warren. I sure hope Levi is all right. God willing, I hope no trouble starts, and I can give Levi his papers back. Duffy, why don't you escort Mrs. Warren on head on down to the Long Branch, I said. I'll be with you as soon as I finish my dinner. Yes, sir, Mr. Bassett. I'll do just as you say, replied Duffy. I finished my dinner, placed some money down on the table, walked outside to the boardwalk of the restaurant, and I checked my watch for the time. I thought to myself, 8.30 and all is well. Then it happened. Gunshots rang out. The shots sounded if they could crack a skull as if the sound itself could purify the mind. The noise reverberated in my ears and rang out from inside the long branch. I started running. I reached my holster and pulled my colt. When I got to the long branch, I looked in through the door. I saw Richardson dodging and running around the billiard table. Loving was also running and dodging around the table. Each was shooting at each other. Deputy Duffy grabbed hold of Richardson. Handling him easily, Duffy threw Richardson onto some chairs and came away with his gun. Richardson's coat was on fire, having been so close to the discharge of Frank's Remington. I looked over and saw Richardson on his hands and knees. There was a blood pool on the floor, soaking his knees. He pressed a pale hand to his stomach, trying to seal his wound shut. I ran over to Loving and disarmed him. Richardson got up and started stumbling toward the billiard table with a fatal wound to his chest. The bullet wound was a mess, as if he'd been hit with two different kinds of weapons at once. Richardson has also been shot through the side and through the right arm. The bullet wound was small, somewhat ragged around the edges, but barely bleeding. I looked at Loving. All he had to show for the fight was a slight scratch on his hand. I looked over at Duffy. What the Sam Hill happened, I yelled. I was here watching over the saloon like you asked me to, Marshal, said Duffy. Richardson got a drink from the bar and moved over to the pot-bellied stove in the front room. Richardson stood there for a while, looking at the front door. He finished his drink and headed for the door just as Frank Loving entered. That's when Richardson immediately turned and followed Loving back into the Long Branch. Why didn't you say something to Richardson when he followed Loving back in the saloon, I asked. Well, Marshal, it looked as if they were back in good standing, replied Duffy. Loving sat down at the hazard table. Richardson took a seat near him at the same table. You know the two of them were good friends. You can see now how good friendship ends up, I said, especially when there's a woman involved. Yes, sir, I know, but it happened so fast, replied Duffy. All I saw was Richardson saying something to Loving. He must have berated Loving and goaded him into fighting. I'm not sure what he said. All I know is what I saw. What did you see, I asked. All I know is that Loving got up from the hazard table and said something indistinct to Richardson, replied Duffy. What was said, I asked. What was said between them? I don't know, Marshal. I didn't hear any words, replied Duffy. I heard him, Marshal, said Adam Jackson, who came around from behind the bar. 
I was over by the table cleaning up when Richardson told Loving, If you have anything to say about me, why don't you come and say it to my face like a gentleman, and not to my back, you damn son of a gun. Richardson immediately stood up and said, You wouldn't fight anything, you damn son of a gun. Loving retorted, You try me and see. Duffy butted in and interrupted Adam. Whatever was said, it sure made Richardson mad, exclaimed Duffy. This is when Richardson drew his pistol, and Loving drew his in response. Their pistols were so close together that they touched each other. What followed was a hail of gunfire, filling the long branch with smoke. It was hard to see what happened, Marshal. The smoke was so thick. The gunfight started by the stove in the front room. I saw Richardson with a pistol in his hand. He was chasing Loving around the stove. The last thing I saw before you came in, Marshal, was Richardson reach around the stove and fire at Loving. Everyone in the room ran for cover. They all scrambled. One man crawled through the transom set above the window at the back door, and another crawled into the ice chest hunting safety. Duffy and I hauled Loving off to jail to await the verdict of the coroner's inquest, while the Ford County Globe took its course in telling another story of violence in Dodge City. The newspaper gave testimonies of individuals who had witnessed the shooting. The statements were given by Adam Jackson, a bartender at the Long Branch, City Marshal Bassett, and Deputy Sheriff William Duffy. (laughs) 